Father, we know that regardless of our circumstances, you are able. You will never leave us. You will never fail us. Just as with David, just as with Ina, as you work through her in the Dominican Republic, work through us, Lord God. Open our ears so that we can hear from you. Open our hearts, more importantly, to hear from you today. In your precious, loving name we pray. Amen. Peace of the Lord to you. So what we're going to do right now, even though you've already seated yourselves, we're going to stand up again. We're going to do something that followers of Jesus have been doing for a few thousand years. We're going to greet each other and with the greeting, the peace of the Lord be with you. So let's do that right now. Rise and greet each other. So happy uh, Independence Day weekend. I see that we're the ones that decided not to spend four hours in traffic on the way to the beach. So let us congratulate each other on our good wisdom in doing that. Uh, my name is John Malella. I am one of the elders here at Gateway Community Church. And we're going to be talking this morning about a very familiar story. We are looking at the life of David in the Old Testament, and we're in the series looking at his life, David devoted to God. And we're using David as a lens to see what does it look like to be devoted to God. Now, we have a challenge this morning. The challenge is, of course, this is a very familiar story. It's David and Goliath. Some of you have heard this story a few times. Some of you with children may know this story as maybe the VeggieTales version. Okay, I believe it was Dave and the Giant Pickle. Others of you that do a little bit of reading know this story maybe from Malcolm Gladwell's latest book. Malcolm Gladwell wrote Blink, The Outliers. And, of course, he had to write a book about David and Goliath. His lens, of course, is the business industry Pinboard versus Google, things like that. We have a little different lens today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the story. I'm going to make some comments as we read, and I'm going to have some points at the end. So it's a pretty standard outline, I think, for, for preaching. Uh, but here's what I'd like you to do. As we're reading, and, and do you guys know that, that sermons are not one way? You, you guys know that, right? You guys... Maybe, even if it's your first time in a church, you've probably seen, you know, at least television. And you know that, of course, the person up here is speaking, but you are participating. So here's how I'd like you to participate today. I'd like you to pray. I'd like you to shoot arrows up while I'm speaking. That's how you participate. I also want you to participate in thinking as you hear some words, thinking, how does this apply to me? Because if it's just a story and it doesn't apply to our lives, it's just a story. And I also want you to be thinking of, where is Jesus in this story? But John, it's the Old Testament. Well, yes, I know that. It is the Old Testament. But we know from a conversation that Jesus had with his friends in Luke chapter 24, where he said something extremely outrageous. He said, the whole Bible's about me. So what we want to do today is read this also through the Jesus lens and figure out how this story is about 
Jesus. A familiar story today. We're going to look at it. So if you have a Bible on your phone or if you, you know, you believe in killing trees and you actually have a book, what we're going to do is read 1 Samuel chapter 17. Oh, why don't we pray first? Lord, I'm always struck by how ridiculous it is that you ordained us to speak and that through that you have promised that you will change us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters today and for myself that we would be open to you. Lord, we want to move forward today. Some of us are stagnant. Some of us are hurt. Some of us are extremely disappointed. Some of us are bored. Some of us have the weight of the world on our shoulders. Some of us are sick. And we look to you, Lord, just as we sang a few minutes ago. We look to you. Through these words, Lord, I pray that they would be therapy for our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick this up in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socal in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socal and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So who are the Philistines? Let's talk about them for a second. We're a little bit familiar with them. There's actually ancient writings. The Egyptians wrote about the Philistines. They called them the Sea Peoples, and they probably came from the Aegean, from that area, and they settled on the the coast of the Mediterranean, kind of west of where Israel is. And we know from the Bible that the relationship between the Philistines and the Israelites is not good. We know that when Israel left Egypt, they had to make a detour around the Philistines because the Philistines were not exactly, shall we say, hospitable to the Israelites. Now, in the time of the judges, we know that the Philistines were always at war with the Israelites. You know the story of Samson. Who was he always going up against? It was the Philistines. And why are we at this battle scene now? We have to blame one person for this battle, and it's Saul. If you read a little bit earlier in this book, in chapter 14, the Philistines and the Israelites were doing their usual skirmish, and Israel was really was beating them, really beating them. And then Saul does something kind of, well, really foolish. He says to his soldiers, I don't know if you remember this, and he says, nobody eat until we have thoroughly defeated the Philistines. Nobody eat. <laughs> I don't know about you, but, you know, fighting, that's like, Physical, right? And food is fuel? Yeah. So what happened is nobody ate. And, of course, you cannot fight as well on an empty stomach. I can't do anything on an empty stomach, let alone fight. But so what happened is the Philistines, a lot of them got away that day. So now they're back. Saul, the king of Israel, has to take some blame for this. Now, at this time also, the Philistines are squeezing Israel. And what do I mean by that? Well, they've cut off the supply of iron to Israel. 
Without iron, there's no modern weaponry. There's no swords made of, of iron. There's no spearheads made of iron. Yeah, you can't even have a farm implement made of iron. The Israelites have swords made of bronze instead of the iron. And actually, some scholars think that this desire for modern weapons to have weaponry like the other nations had was a reason Israel may have demanded a king in the first place and wound up with Saul. So we've got armies on opposite hills. Now, if we could put ourselves, let's transport ourselves back to that hilltop with the Israelite army. What would we see? The first thing we would notice is this is not exactly the U.S. Army Special Forces. Nobody's dressed in desert camo. Actually, they're not wearing a lot of clothes at all. And a lot of the guys are barefoot. And then you notice their weaponry. Not a whole lot of grenade launchers or M4s. <laughs> what you notice is, yeah, swords made of bronze. You also notice that some of these guys are carrying farm implements. Yes, that's their weapons. You also notice something else about this band of men. Now, what happens when you get a bunch of guys together for an athletic event? When the wind is still, you notice something. There's a tang in the air. And you realize, this smells like the boys' locker room at Westfield High School. I just picked Westfield because I like that. So we have the Philistine army on the other hill, the Israelites on the other, and the valley in between. You know, this is a tough spot to be because any army that attacks first has to go into that valley. And tactically, that puts them at a disadvantage. So neither army wants to go into the valley it will make them very vulnerable. They will have to give up the high ground. So a common practice in that day was to appoint from each army a champion. Let's get the biggest, meanest, most buff guy out of our team, and let's have him fight it out with the biggest, meanest, strongest, buff guy from the other group, and let's put them together and do a, a death match and let's see who wins. Now, of course, the problem with that is whatever champion won, whatever army was victorious, they would enslave the other side. It was kind of a smart idea. It saved a lot of bloodshed, but talk about the pressure of having to be that champion. How many of you would volunteer for that? So let's look at the Philistines' champion. We're going to continue to read. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. I'll tell you, that's pretty tall. We'll talk about that in a second. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath is a big dude. How big is he? Well, I had to look this up. The tallest player uh, ever played in the NBA. Okay, there were actually two. They, they were tied for the tallest. Manute uh, Bowl and uh, George Murashan. Okay, both of them were 7'7". Seven, seven. That's pretty tall. Goliath topped them. Goliath was probably a full head taller than either one of those guys. He was big. And 
everywhere you look at him, he's got armor. If you look at his head, he's got armor. If you look at his torso, he's got armor. If you look at his legs, he has armor. His armor weighed 125 pounds. He's weighty. And look at his weapons. He's got a spear. The head of the spear weighs 15 pounds. Goliath looks absolutely indestructible. He looks indestructible. Now, an interesting thing here, the Bible says he is the Philistines' champion. And there's a word that's used here for champion that's not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's actually a phrase. And the phrase in the original Hebrew, which is behind this English translation, is ish habenayim, which literally means the man in between. So the Philistines have sent their man in between to face the Israelites. Now, in addition to looking indestructible, he also has a mouth on him. Listen to what he says. I'm picking it up in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They were terrified of this guy. And now, those of us that are still on the hill there in ancient Israel realize that the smell around us is actually the smell of fear. The stunning thing about this, we learn a few verses later, is this is happening every single day. He is coming out morning and evening. I think you can set your your watch by him. He's coming out every day, twice a day, and taunting the Israelites. He is subjecting that to the daily humiliation And they're just standing there, paralyzed by fear. I remember back in high school, my best friend, Victor, he got involved with the wrong girl who happened to have a really, really big boyfriend, which was kind of a bad idea. So Victor broke up with this girl, which was wise, good good idea, but the boyfriend was still jealous. So I remember every day leaving school, guess who would be outside the fence would be the boyfriend. And he would subject Victor, and I kind of got the collateral damage there, to a daily humiliation. And he would tell Victor about all the ways he's going to break him in half. That was tough to take. I remember one day the gym teacher actually showed up. He was also the wrestling coach. Boy, was I glad to see him. That was a good moment. The daily humiliation. And they're standing there paralyzed by fear. Does anybody know what that's like? This is what some people call a doom loop. They can't get out of this. The Israelites are there on the hill every day, and they have to hear this every day. And they're terrified every day. Some of you know what that's like. You're caught in a doom loop today. And it could be a lot of things. You could be in a relationship that's just not going the right direction. It could be your health. 
It could be something like anxiety, which I have a lot of experience in dealing with. You're stuck there, paralyzed by fear. So you realize here in the story, Goliath has sent their man in between. So where is the man in between for Israel? Who is going to go into the valley for Israel? Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. We already know this about David. What's his job in the family? He keeps the sheep. (laughs) That's a dirty job. Nobody else wants to do that. He keeps the sheep. His three oldest brothers, they went to war. They're with Saul's army. The three sons of Jesse, David is taking care of the sheep, and Papa Jesse gives David a task, and he says to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are doing and bring back some assurance from them. Interestingly, this assurance is not assurance that they're doing well. He already asked that. See how they're doing. This assurance, what he's asking for is bring back some spoils or bring back a token of the spoils. The spoils of war. When you defeat an enemy, you take his stuff. Bring back the spoils, or bring me back a token of the spoils of war. Continue verse 19. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. What did David hear? David heard exactly what the other thousands of Israelite men had heard. But the way he heard it was different. Goliath is yelling, the Israelites are running away. They're running away. He's all the way down in the valley. They're running away. Reminds me of when I was little, and I wanted to be a fireman. You know, and that's a noble thing, right? And I think a lot of kids, they want to be a fireman. I really wanted to be a fireman until I saw my first fire. So here I am, little John Malella. I'm out with my mom, young enough to still hold her hand. And sure enough, there in Richmond Hill, Queens, there's a house fire down one of the blocks. And the firemen are rushing into that. Flames are coming out of the window. You ever see a house? Flames are coming out of the window. So I saw that as a little kid. I tore away from my mother. I ran away so fast. I fell down and I got a big hole in my pants. 
That's how afraid I was. But I was little. These are grown men. They're running away. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Saul didn't want to fight this guy. Saul is the king. Saul is a warrior. He's the leader of the nation. He doesn't want to fight this guy. So he starts giving incentives. And I think that he probably gives these incentives maybe one at a time. He is looking to give one of the Israelite soldiers an offer that he can't refuse. Listen to what he says. He's going to give great wealth to the man who kills him. Okay, basically, I'm going to give you some cash. You take this guy on. Well, it seems that nobody, <laughs> nobody took that offer. I'm also going to give you my daughter in marriage. That means you're going to be related to the royal family. Nobody took that offer either. And how about this one? I will exempt your family from taxes. <laughs> yes. No. Nobody took that one either. So David asked the men standing near him, kind of a repeat, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Now listen to David's perspective here. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is the only one with that perspective here. Who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is? He's not defying us. He's defying God. So what's going to be done for the man that takes him down? I want to know that. I want to know what I could bring back to my dad. Now, David, like a lot of us, is misunderstood by his family. His older brother is there. And it says, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here, you twerp? What are you doing down here? This is where the men are. Why don't you go back and take care of, what do you got, like three or four sheep? Why don't you go back and play with them? This is where the men are. I know what you want. You just came down for the show. You want to see what real men do. You came down for the show. Interesting how Eliab thought that he could read David's intentions, and he was dead wrong. You know, we do this too. We, we judge people's intentions, and a lot of times we're wrong also. In this case, he was dead wrong. And David said, well, now what have I done? I can't even speak. He then turned to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Think of this now. Forty days of humiliation. Saul is desperate, isn't he? I mean, he's grasping at straws. He's thinking, what else can I offer people? I already offered them exemption from taxes, and no one took it. What else can I offer them? So he hears that there is somebody who is asking and inquiring about taking on the giant. So he says, bring them to me. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart 
on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul does something that is very, very reasonable at this time. He judges David based on his looks. He's a boy. So Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. This is a giant. He's been a warrior from his youth. He's battle-tested. He's been doing this for years. You're a boy. Listen to what David says. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul didn't know that David had this history. I'm going to talk about this in a little bit. David had been trained and Saul didn't know about it. Well, Saul is somehow convinced and he said, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. So here's what's going on now. David has no armor. He's got no weaponry that Saul can recognize. So Saul says, come in, we're going to get you ready for the battle. So, and this is quite an honor for David. He starts dressing David in his uniform, his war clothes. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword, Saul's sword, over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to the... He just pictured David, right? He's got this thing on now. It's like chain mail, and he's trying to walk in it, and he's really having a hard time. It goes down past his feet. It's heavy. And he says to Saul, now again, this is a great armor. He, is, he has the king's armor on him. But he says to Saul... I cannot go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. David now has no armor. Then he took his staff in his hand, the shepherd's staff. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. So think of this now. You've got two armies One on this hill, the Israelites. One on this hill, the Philistines. You have the giant in the valley. And all of them look over at the brook, visible to all of them. And what do they see? They see a boy kneeling. What is he doing? He's picking out stones. He's kneeling. He's vulnerable. Is that the posture of a warrior? This must be a joke. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. This is what you give me to fight? Am I a dog? (laughs) You come at me with sticks? What is that? Is that a stick? 
You're going to hit me with a stick? And what is that in your hand? Slingshot? And it says the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He says, come here. Come here, boy. And I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. But David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Do you notice the Philistine had told him, Goliath had said, I'm going to feed you to the animals. And David one-upped him. David said, no, no, I'm going to feed you all to the animals. You're all going down. And he says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands, not just you, giant, all of you. And we picture this scene as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, probably not very quickly, wearing all that armor. It says David ran quickly. David ran. And reaching into his bag, he took out a stone. And he put it in his sling, which is probably made out of leather strips with a patch on it. And he starts the wind-up, and he starts to swing it. And it says, he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. So David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. So the giant is down. What happens next? When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah, you got to love this, a united army, the Israelites and the Judahites, surged forward with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. And David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. We're going to talk a little bit about trophies in a minute. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Now, this is confusing. I want to talk about this. Didn't Saul actually have David as kind of like a part-time musician in his court? Alex taught about that last week. Well, he did. But remember, Saul is losing his spiritual marbles. And I think what's happening here is he doesn't even recognize David anymore. Doesn't even recognize him. And neither does Abner. So they bring him before Saul, and Saul says, Whose son are you, young man? David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. What a story. Inspiring. Crazy. What does it teach us about devotion to God? Do you know, devotion often looks like recklessness to outsiders. 
Imagine yourself in the Israelite army. Devotion looks like recklessness. You're in the army and word spread after 40 days that we finally have a champion. Oh, finally somebody is standing up and the humiliation is going to be over. And just imagine David steps out of the ranks and a shout goes up and you lean in to see, who is it? Is it Saul? Is the king himself going to go and face the giant? Or is it a mighty man? Maybe it's Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. I heard he's a big dude. And then you see, wait, wait. wait he's going to go face the giant? He's a boy. He doesn't even have a sword. And is that a shepherd's staff? Oh, no way. Is that a slingshot? <laughs> it looks reckless. But David was outrageously confident. Where did this outrageous confidence come from? It came from his training. It came from his training. Remember, Saul's first reaction to David was, you can't do this, you're a kid. But Alex mentioned this last week. God had been training David. David basically said to Saul, this guy is just another bear to me with a little bit less hair. He's just a lion, but with a bigger mouth. I've been training for this. God has been training me. You know, I was reading about um, somebody you know, Gary Schneider, who runs Every Orphan's Hope. I just happened to be on the website and look at his quick, quick biography. Every Orphan's Hope reaches out to orphans in, in Africa. You know, Gary had a lucrative job, a really good job, and he left it to start the ministry. And I'm sure that some of the people he knew must have thought he was nuts, reckless to give up a good job. But if you read his biography, you see that God had been training him for years. What he was doing in the corporate world was training him for ministry. John mentioned Ina York starting a ministry in the Dominican Republic. God had been training her for years to do that. Of course, it looks reckless to leave a comfortable life. But it makes perfect sense if God is training you. So what is God training you for today? What's he training you for? You know, to be able to answer that, you need to be tracking with God. You know, David knew exactly. He said, I have taken on the bear and the lion, and God has given me victory. So David recognized, David could go back in his history, and he recognized patterns of where God had acted in his life and rescued him. So how about us? Are we tracking with God? Can we say that? Can we look back last week, last month, last year, last decade, and say, This is what God has done in my life. I see patterns. He's training me. What is God training you for? What is God training us for as a church? We're building a building. It's going to be wonderful. What's he training us for? That's what we need to ask. Where is he showing himself faithful to us? Where is there a pattern? So devotion often looks reckless to outsiders but God is training us. Devotion also means that we fight God's battles God's way. When David stepped up to fight Goliath, Saul's first instinct was, you need armor. You know, that's what Saul would have done. Saul would have fought Goliath with Goliath's tactics. Goliath has armor. I need armor. If it was up to Saul, he would have fought Goliath using all of Goliath's weapons. But David realized that wasn't going to work. See, God did not train David to fight with armor. 
God trained David to fight vulnerable, without armor, so that he could rely on God. If David tried to fight Goliath using Goliath's tactics and his weapons, David was going to lose. So how are we supposed to fight? You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, and I know we do have some of those in the congregation, but it does not take a rocket scientist to realize it's becoming harder and harder to be a Christian in this country. And I'm certainly not a a, the-sky-is-falling, cultural decay kind of person. But it is. It's getting harder. So how are we going to respond? Are we going to stand on the sidelines? Will we use the same hot rhetoric that is thrown at us? You fundamentalist intolerance. We have to be reminded that the church's fight is ultimately not against people. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. So if we can't fight using Goliath's weapons, what do we have? Well, I'm going to talk about two of them real quick. We have the Jesus story. Some people call it the gospel. And we have prayer. So, John, you're saying as a church, one of our main weapons, so to speak, is a 2,000-year-old story. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. That's what we have. And, John, you're saying that one of the other weapons we have is basically talking to somebody I can't see? Yes. Doesn't that look, from the outside, doesn't that look kind of dinky? (laughs) It looks dinky, doesn't it? Okay, so you guys, you, so you talk, you, have a, you, know, you tell a, G, a Jesus story, and you talk to this person you can't see, right? It, it seems dinky. It does. You know what it seems like? It seems like a staff and a sling against a giant. And what I realize in my own life, I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of times I have opportunity to tell the Jesus story, and I shrink back. Or I don't take opportunities to to connect with God in that way. I stay detached because maybe it just seems dinky. And what we forget is this, that Jesus story, according to Paul the Apostle, is the power of God for salvation. That Jesus story is God's vehicle for changing the eternal destinies of people. What's, what's more powerful than that? That story, as that story goes out throughout the world, people are changed. Their trajectory of their lives is changed forever. It's the power of God unto salvation and prayer. <laughs> Do you know when you pray, you participate with God? You participate with God in shaping history. Yes, God actually gives you a role in that. When we pray, things happen. When we don't pray, you tell me. So the question for us is, where are you trying to put on Saul's armor? How do you answer that? What's weighing you down? What's weighing you down so you can't move? What is it? You've adopted a tactic from the world instead of from God, and it's keeping you from the fight. What's weighing you down today? Where have you tried to put on Saul's armor? What else does devotion mean? 
Devotion means for us that we become less optical. Have you heard that phrase? It's all about the optics. <laughs> we use that at work. I don't know about Do you guys have this at work? Do you have jargon? Okay. We realize we can have entire conversations at work just using jargon. You know, talk about things like uh, skill set and pain point and all these other things. Hopefully you guys have escaped this. But, no, we have this in, in my job. We certainly do. And, and one phrase that I heard recently was, it's all about the optics. How do things look? There's a shift in this passage. Did you notice it? The Israelites heard Goliath. They heard his boasting. But later, all it took for them was they just had to see him, and they ran away. David was not fooled by his eyes. Have you noticed as we're reading through this book, how can I say it? The eyes are unreliable. They're unreliable. Why was Saul made king? Because he looked good. Remember, he was a head taller than everyone else. He looked good. He looked the part. And even last week, as Alex talked, when Samuel went to anoint a new king, what did he say when he first saw Eliab? Okay, big, tall guy, looked good, built. He said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Wait a second, but Samuel was a spiritual guy. He was connected to God. How could he make that mistake? We need to become less optical. As Alex taught last week, Saul was an epic fail as a king, even though he looked good. And Eliab did not have it in here to be king. There will be a time in David's life when he allows his eyes to betray him also. And we know about that. Goliath looked a certain way, didn't he? He looked invincible and impressive. He was not. We need to get a hold of this. We need to be more skeptical about the optics. You know, we're going to face challenges, and some of you already have in your life that are going to look impossible. On the outside, they're going to look absolutely impossible. And you're going to look and say, how am I going to deal with this? They're not. As a church, we're going to face challenges. We already have and overcome many of them. I think of the building. We're going to face challenges as a church. And I believe some of those challenges are going to look absolutely undefeatable. They're not. Are we going to rely on our eyes? So today, where are your eyes fooling you? What in your life looks absolutely unsolvable? I have such good news for you. It's not. It's not. The giant is not invincible. What else does devotion look like? You know, a few weeks ago, Ed preached, and one of the points he made was that obedience is better than disobedience. And uh, I tend to agree. I think he's absolutely right. Obedience is better. <laughs> David knew this. He had been trained in this. You know, Alex talked last week about how God was training David. We talked about that already. You know what I thought of when I read this? I thought of chaos theory. All right, now hold on. Before I go on, I'm not real smart. So let me not make you think that I'm smarter than I am if I bring up mathematics. My wife knows very well. She balances the checkbook in our family. I don't know anything about money or numbers. I just don't. I don't do that stuff. I, I, my brain doesn't work that way. So, you know, thankfully I married a mathematically competent woman. But chaos theory, what is that? 
Some of you know it as the um, butterfly effect. And it basically, it's, it's a mathematical theory or study that says something like this. If you go around the other side of the world, a butterfly flapping its wings can set into motion a chain of events so that on this side of the world, there's a hurricane. Interesting, isn't it? This is how Google puts it. It's the branch of mathematics that deals with complex systems whose behavior is highly sensitive to slight changes in conditions so that small alterations can give rise to strikingly great consequences. What does that have to do with this story? Small alterations can give rise to strikingly great consequences. This story is not really about David and Goliath. It's really not. Because when David steps up in obedience to his father, who said, bring me back the spoils, and he knocks the giant down, he's not just defeating Goliath, he defeats an entire army. His one act of obedience. David took down an entire army with a stone. If you are here today, it's because somebody somewhere in the past was obedient and you're a beneficiary of that. Somebody was obedient and set in play a chain of events that resulted in you being here today. We celebrate that on the 4th of July. People were obedient hundreds of years ago and we benefit What a weight to carry. Our actions matter. The Philistine army was defeated with a single stone. And so every act of obedience echoes through the generations. The obedience that you show today, you don't even see the result of it. We'll see the result of it generations from now. Small acts of obedience. An army was defeated with a single stone. Now, I could stop here. I could stop here and say, we need to be like David. And I think that's a good message. I could say something like, we need to take down the giant. And that's a good message. We need to buckle down. We need to load the sling. It's a good message. And I think we need to grab hold of that message. But I think there's more. You see, I've lived long enough to know that there are giants you can't face. And if you're honest, you and I are more like the Israelites on the hill. There are giants that look like a bad diagnosis or a child that breaks your heart or disappoints you or chronic illness or addiction or a relationship you had hope in and it's failed. I can go on and on and on. And what about death? You want to touch that one? I can catalog the ills of humanity And in many of these, you've tried and you've failed. And you're on the 41st day. And you're on the hill and you look down in the valley and you see the giant. And you ask yourself, where is the man in between for me? Where is he? Where is my champion? I have a privilege today. (laughs) I have such a privilege today. And I am shocked sometimes that God has given this to people to announce. I have a privilege today to announce to you that you have a champion. You have a champion. You have a true and better David. 
David is a picture for us of one who was to come. Another son of Jesse from Bethlehem. His name is Jesus. You have a champion who, in obedience to his father, who said, go and bring me the spoils of war, went down into the valley. And he didn't care about what the optics were. He took the form of a servant in a backwater in the ancient Near East. He went into the valley for you and me, for us. He faced death, and he stomped it. Cost him everything. He faced sin, our bentness away from God, and he ended our slavery to it. His one act of obedience echoes through the ages. He delivered us to the Father as the spoils of war. Do you know your champion today? Are you connected to him? Are you living with him? Are you walking with him? You can know him. If you don't know him, today is the day you can know your champion. Open your heart to him. And maybe some of you, you've gotten disconnected. Maybe some of you, you looked too long at the giant and you're paralyzed. There are going to be some people here on my left after the service. And maybe some of you need to come down here and they're going to kneel with you Maybe not literally, because some of us, if we kneel, we can't get up. But they're going to kneel with you, and they're going to look for five smooth stones with you. So I encourage you, if you need that, come and spend some time with these people. Stand with me, please. We're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to digest a little bit. Lord, you have given this story to us to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us. And again, I know we we come from different places. We're at different places today. And Lord, all we have is a staff and a sling. And you, as we move into the battles we face, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to lean into you. And Lord, help us to connect to your champion, the man in between, who is for us. Help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.